Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden from the Enid Pratt-Free Library, and welcome to the Central Library, the State Library Resource Center. And I'm emphasizing that because very shortly this magnificent building will be undergoing a renovation, and it's going to be wonderful. So you'll be hearing more about that soon. And the first thing that we're going to get is a brand new system for sound. So, yes, somebody's clapping. Uh, But we appreciate you being here for a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series that is brought to you by a very generous gift by PNC Bank. And this evening, we are honored to have with us a gentleman who has had a very successful career in public service. And in his new memoir, he pulls no punches on his 40-year career in politics and the societal changes that have allowed him to thrive. And so tonight, the Pratt Library is delighted to welcome to Baltimore Congressman Barney Frank. Now, we're excited to hear him discuss his new book, and the Ivy Bookstore is here in case you haven't gotten a copy yet, Frank, A Life in Politics, From the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. But we're also eager to hear not only about his book, but if he could just share a few insights on Congress (laughs) and the upcoming presidential election, we would be very pleased. As many of you know, our Writers Live series is dedicated to presenting a wide range of ideas and information to the public. We encourage spirited discussions on all topics and books and authors who will bring those things to life. And to do this, we try to bring a spectrum of social and political thought so that people can choose what they want to listen to, read, or view a commercial from the American Library Association. You are free to read. Now, all of this wouldn't have been possible, as I mentioned, without the generous help of our donors and patrons, and many of them are here tonight with us, and we thank you sincerely for all you do for the Pratt Library. Now, one of those patrons is here tonight to introduce our special guest. Um, With her husband, who serves on the library's board, Mary Miller is committed to supporting not only the library, but other Baltimore institutions, cultural, educational, and all organizations that help other people. She was most recently Undersecretary for Domestic Finance at the U.S. Treasury and had a very successful and prolific career at T. Rowe Price before that. So please welcome Miss Mary Miller. Thank you, Carla Hayden and the Enoch Pratt Free Library for hosting this event, and welcome to all of you who have turned out for this. I am delighted to introduce Congressman Barney Frank tonight to talk about his new book called Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. I once had the misfortune of following Barney Frank in delivering remarks at a state housing agency conference. He walked in and delivered his remarks spontaneously with no notes or hesitation. They were funny, hard-hitting, and straight to the point. The audience loved it. 
I, in contrast, was holding a speech that had been cleared by every lawyer in the general counsel's office at the Treasury and could be fairly described as dull as dishwater. I've avoided that situation tonight by going first. (laughs) Congressman, welcome to Baltimore. Over four decades of public service at the city, state, and federal level, Barney Frank accumulated a wealth of experience and wisdom that he has now put down on paper. Four decades is a long time. He served under five presidents, House speakers ranging from Tip O'Neill to John Boehner, countless changes in leadership and responsibility. The book chronicles his personal struggle to come to terms with his life as a gay man and to do that in the most public of places, Washington, D.C. Since I believe this year must mark your 75th birthday, correct me if I'm wrong, It's now almost 30 years since you made the courageous decision to go public with your own sexual identity. And then you doubled down on your tireless fight to win legal protections for all LGBT members of our society. We have seen tremendous progress on these issues across the country, and you should rightly take both credit and pride in that progress. In Barney Frank's words, the book identifies two seismic shifts in American life the sharp drop in prejudice against LGBT people, and a sharp rise in anti-government sentiment. The value to me of reading this book was the opportunity to see the real protagonist here, the drive to get things done, to relentlessly pursue a goal over years and decades, to find avenues of compromise, to work across party lines, takes a person with focus and pragmatism well beyond normal powers. When I read a book, I like to turn down the corners of pages when I want to remember some lines or come back to them. Sorry about the corner thing, Carla. But let me quote one thing from the book. The most committed activists on the left and the right are convinced that the majority of voters agree with them, but that institutional flaws in our democracy prevents popular sentiment from prevailing they are usually wrong. I think you will find in the book both facts and history, but also an unusually clear vision of the realities of the political process. My overlap in Washington came near the end of Barney Frank's era. He could have retired in 2008 and spared himself the final chapters of his legislative work and possibly the most exhausting years. But as chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, he took on the biggest rewrite of our financial system regulation in nearly 80 years. The passage of the Dodd-Frank legislation in July 2010 was a signature achievement that has already made our financial system safer and sounder. Of course, getting there was a Herculean task. I will close with another good quote from the book. The committee now had 42 Democrats to 29 Republicans. For the next two years, I got to sleep by counting Democrats, relaxing only when I could get to 36. Both sleep and passage would have come more easily if I could have substituted sheep. I'm also mentioning that quote to make sure you know I read the entire book, because that was near the end. It is my great pleasure now to turn this over to Barney Frank. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you very much. My, uh, my thanks to the library. I am, for me, this is a twofer. I get to sell some books and I get to support an institution uh, of which I think uh, a great deal of the public library system. So I'm very happy to, to be here for, uh, for both. I also, I don't know if he stayed, he is certainly entitled to have left because he has listened to enough other politicians make speeches, but I will say that before there was Dodd-Frank, there was Sarbanes-Oxley. And uh, uh, there's Paul. Paul is still here. And I will say that I have served with a great set of members, Senate and House, from uh, the city of Baltimore, from the Baltimore region, and from uh, the whole state. For Elijah Cummings and John Sarbanes and uh, uh, Chris Van Hollen and Donna Edwards and Dutch Rupesberger and, and, of course, Barbara Mikulski, who has had one of the most extraordinary Senate careers ever, and, uh, and Ben Cardin. They have all been great leaders, and I do have to also acknowledge my own personal debt and admiration to a, uh, a, a once daughter of Baltimore, Nancy Pelosi, who has been a great leader of the U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> Mary Miller was a, a great source of strength to us at the Department of Treasury. One of the things that I uh, find in Paul understands this. I took pride in the extent to which I was supportive of appointed officials in Treasury and elsewhere. The way our media is structured, and the uh, internet makes this worse, there is an incentive for elected officials in the Congress to be critical of executive branch officials, uh, particularly if they want publicity. I, I am not a regular watcher of YouTube and, and, and related matters. Uh, my interest in other people's cats is quite minimal. But um, I, uh, I am willing to bet that no clip of a senator telling a secretary of the Treasury what a good job he has done has ever gone viral. What gets you in the prints is a tax. Generally, and this is the problem, if the executive branch has done something of which you approve and you express approval, they get the credit and nobody pays any attention to you. For too many of my colleagues, that has been a factor. But I'm very proud of the role I played first with the Bush administration and then with the Obama administration in being cooperative with the departments that were under the jurisdiction of the committee that I served on and ultimately chaired, HUD and Treasury, and also some of the other agencies. Uh, let me begin with that because... One, I don't know if you have read the back of the book. I'm sort of, I give you a lot of requirements. Uh, in this case, I, the blurbs are substantive because I'm very proud that the two blurbs on the back, two of the three, one is a longtime leader in, in uh, gay advocacy, um, Andrew Tobias, but uh, the other two blurbs are Hank Paulson and Elizabeth Warren. And I take pride in the fact that they came together in, in ways that they don't often, although they are not nearly as polar opposite as they get caricatured. People ask me what happened to bipartisanship. Well, there's a partisan answer. Barack Obama got elected and the Republicans refused to give him any of the kind of cooperation we gave George W. Bush. George Bush became president 
and in the last two years of his term faced a Republican Congress. He began the last year by saying to Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, two people seen legitimately as, as, as partisans, as you should be, partisanship done right is very important to a democracy, and he said the economy is in trouble, we need a stimulus. And Pelosi and Reid said, yeah, let's, let's do this. Now, if they had the kind of partisanship that Mitch McConnell showed or John Boehner, they would have said to each other, oh, the economy's in trouble. This is a presidential election year. Isn't that a shame? And done nothing. And profited politically from a declining economy. Instead, they said, yeah, we can't sit by and let the people we care about be hurt. So they passed a stimulus. A year later, when Barack Obama asked for a stimulus, he got one a little smaller than it should have been because of unanimous, virtually unanimous Republican opposition. That is, the Republicans denied to Barack Obama the same cooperation we gave George Bush. One difference, it's semantic. Uh, we, we did not call it a stimulus. Um, I, I love Nancy Pelosi. I think she's one of our great leaders. She does have more faith than I do in focus groups. Focus groups are when politicians gather people who do not have strong opinions and ask them about things to decide what would be the best way to message it. The problem, in my experience, is that there is a correlation between not having strong opinions and being an airhead. Um, <laughs> and so you ask these people who don't know very much, which is how they get to be in a focus group, and I'm skeptical. For some reason, they decided after the focus group not to call our economic effort to restart the economy or jump up the economy a stimulus. They, they, they decided that calling it recovery was better. I said I, that was counterintuitive to me because in my experience, everybody I know would rather be stimulated than recover. So I don't know why recovery became better than stimulus, but I was overruled. Um, but we, that's an example. More to the point, in September of 2008, talk about this in the book, George Bush sends his top economic people, Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke, and they come to Congress and said, look, this economy is about to implode completely and totally. If you do not give us authority to lend hundreds of billions of dollars to the very banks, some of whom were culpable. Now, we were good politicians. We understood that we were being asked to do something that would be enormously unpopular. And in fact, I, I am confident that when you read history 10, 20 years from now, the TARP, that program, will go down as the most highly successful, wildly unpopular thing the federal government ever did. And we did it for George Bush seven weeks before an election. We did it in greater numbers than his Republicans. Because we, and here's the difference, when a Republican is president, Democrats have the incentive to hurt him politically, but also the incentive to support him because we know that government is important, and if a government is not functioning, the people we care about get hurt. They used to be Republicans who thought that way. And I'm not just talking about a Mac Mathias or a Connie Morella on the left. I'm talking about a Bob Dole or George H.W. Bush, people who wanted to put the line between the public and private sectors further into the private arena than I did, but still understood that we needed both. You have a dominant wing in the Republican Party today, especially in the House, that simply does not understand that government has a constructive role to play. So when it comes to cooperating with a Democratic president, they have two incentives to be uncooperative. One, the partisan one, and we Democrats have that with a Republican president. But where we have an incentive also to cooperate, 
to keep government functioning and providing services to people, they have a very opposite incentive to cut government back and further to discredit government because they have this ideological opposition to it. So I just begin with that. When you ask about bipartisanship, compare the way the Republicans responded to George Bush in 2000, the Democrats to George Bush in 2008, to the immediate rejection of the idea of cooperation from the Republicans. Chris Dodd thought he was going to have a cooperative relationship with his Senate Republicans, some of whom offered to cooperate. And they were told by their leadership they would not cooperate. Chris Dodd had scheduled a session of the Senate committee to vote on the bill. It's called a markup, because you're literally marking up a copy of the bill with amendments. And about 100 amendments had been submitted by senators from both parties. And the Friday before the session was to start next week, he got a call from the Republican leadership of the committee and said, we don't have any amendments. We're not offering any. We're just against the bill. So this very complicated bill was reported out in 10 minutes um, because the Republicans had just made an, a, a party decision to vote no and to block any kind of regulation. Let me now go back to the uh, basic frame of the book because this is where we end. Uh, as I say in the book, I, uh, when I was 14, I, I realized that I was gay. We then said homosexual. This is 1954. And I wanted to be in politics. And I understood that wasn't going to work very well because being a homosexual was very unpopular. And despite Ben Carson's demonstration that you can be very bright in some areas and very stupid in others, I know of, I know of no 13-year-old who would say to himself, I get a great idea. Why don't I become one of the most despised people in the country? and be a, a person that everybody will hate and make fun of and mock. Um, so I was somewhat unhappy about that, but I figured, okay, I'm going to be in politics. I'll never tell anybody I'm gay. And I knew that would still be a problem because my goal was to make changes in society that made it a better place. I was motivated by the brutal murder of Emmett Till to deal with racism. I watched the Army McCarthy hearings and said, gee, we have to protect people's civil liberties and freedom to dissent, and I cared a lot about economic fairness. And so here was my dilemma. How can I become influential in getting social change when I was so much a member of this minority that I could never get into the government? I was going to have a hard time getting into the government, which was where the influence was. A spoiler alert, as I said in the book. As time went on, for reasons I'll touch on briefly and um, you can read the book for the rest. Um, the obstacle to my being influential in government because of my sexual orientation diminished very rapidly over time. But frustratingly to me, as I became more influential in government, government was becoming less influential in society. So I wound up having a, a significant amount of influence in an entity that couldn't do what I wanted it to do. I mean, I... I uh, as I said, uh, when I retired, there was still a disparity between the uh, social acceptability of being gay and that of being a, uh, a member of Congress, but the order had reversed. Um, and somebody polled, I didn't, I hesitate, I hasten to point out, but I had chaired the committee that wrote the financial reform bill. Polls show that my marrying Jim in our last year in Congress was much more popular than writing the financial reform bill. I said... Uh, Frank Reddy was much more popular than Dodd-Frank. Someone 
said, did you expect that? I said, no, in, in 2000 even, if uh, someone had asked me what would happen if I married my, my husband while I was still in Congress, I would have had to acknowledge it would be terribly controversial. And in the end, it was very controversial uh, because of the limitations of space, a number of my colleagues were very angry that they weren't invited. <laughs> what happened, I believe, is that as more and more members of as more and more members of the LGBT community came out, identified ourselves, our reality beat the prejudice. The prejudice was based on a stereotype that couldn't be refuted when no one knew who we really were. And as we came out, it got diminished. <clears throat> our, our opponents also did us a favor. They did not want to say by even the late 70s and early 80s that they were opposed to equal treatment because they didn't like us and disapproved of us. They had to say that equal treatment legally for LGBT people would have negative social consequences. I mean, our argument is, what, what, what difference is it to you if two men enjoy each other's company emotionally and physically? So they had to argue, because Americans don't like to admit they're being intrusive and that they're, they're interfering for the sake of interfering. Let me quote, I think he's another Baltimorean, isn't he, H.L. Mencken? Um, uh, the, the survival of Puritanism in America, the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. Um, that was Mencken's uh, line. And um, they couldn't say they just didn't approve of us and didn't want us to have a good time, so they predicted negative consequences. What then happened was none of the negative consequences they ever predicted ever came true. States passed laws banning job discrimination, and there was no serious problem. Specifically, states allowed people of the same sex to marry. And as I said in Massachusetts, a couple years after we had same-sex marriage, the average straight person had, had no, didn't even remember it. Uh, if you were a straight person in Massachusetts, the fact that we had same-sex marriage had no impact on your life whatsoever, unless you lived next to a couple of lesbians and had to buy them a wedding present. And I say lesbians, by the way, because one of the things we have proven by being given the right to marry is something that used to be a staple of American comedy, that women are more interested in getting married than men. Now, when you take one man and one woman to get married, you can't prove that. But it is the case that once marriage was allowed between people of the same sex, they were disproportionately between women. There are, for some reason, more gay men than lesbians, but a greater percentage of, of, of lesbians get married than men. But that aside, that's what collapsed it. The, the, the notion that there was some social harm, and as there was no social harm, that, that destroyed the argument. At the same time, though, we were losing the political allegiance, we liberals, we Democrats, we believe as an act of government, of white men who were willing to work for a living but did not bring any particular set of sophisticated skills, who may have worked with their hands, but in general did work which required you to be diligent and show up, but didn't call on some kind of specialized talents or higher education. I think the answer is what James Carville said in 92, it's the economy, stupid. There was a time when people believed, and I sort of believed that, but I was, I was worried about it, that the problem with the social issues, Thomas Frank's view, that we were losing the white working class people because we were seen as anti-religious, uh, allowing abortion, uh, pro-gay. I don't think that was it. Guns is an issue for us, but I don't think we lost votes on the other side. I think the critical reason a lot of white men vote contrary to what would be in their own economic interest is not that they have a philosophical bias against government, but paradoxically because they believe in it so much. What has been in America from the beginning of World War II 
into the 70s was great economic opportunity. Because of the way World War II devastated so much of the rest of the world, we could make anything and sell it anywhere. Glass, steel, autos. America had this incredible degree of prosperity. And that began to erode. It was never sustainable. It was never sustainable that we would have such an advantage over the rest of the world. The rest of the world began to catch up, partly because we were generous. We helped build back Western Europe. We helped build back Japan. We helped bring our ultimate competitors in, in, into the world. And then you had the oil-producing nations and others. And all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but, but all of a sudden we realized that this process had taken place where the position of people who worked for a living in that sense in America was eroding. It was exacerbated by international trade policies. Now, international trade clearly does increase the wealth of the country as a whole. It took too long for people to acknowledge, including economists, that if it's done simply in a kind of a total free market way, it both increases the wealth of the country and affects the distribution of wealth within the country. And international trade helped America get wealthy, but also exacerbated inequality between the high-skilled, highly educated people whose products were more likely to be exported and the people who did basic work, manufacturing and others, who were competing with cheaper imports. At any rate, what you have is a situation where American working people have seen an erosion of their economic position. Everybody now acknowledges that. And they are angry, I believe, at the government because they think the government could have made it different and didn't. That's where the social issues come in. I think there is a sense on the part of some of them that one of the reasons they have not been treated better by the government in responding to their problem is that we were too busy catering to African-Americans, women, gays. Not true, but the perception. That is, I don't think they objected to those things in principle. It was more like uh, a sibling complaining that the parents were favoring the others. That leaves us, I believe, with a uh, vicious cycle. I think that you have people who really do believe that government could be good and are angry at it precisely because their economic position has weakened and the government has done nothing to help them. And so in their anger, they then vote for people who also hate the government. But these are people who don't want the government to do anything. And that's the vicious cycle. People are angry at the government, so they vote for people who disbelieve in the government, and then the government does worse, and they get angrier, etc., etc. I think the way to break that cycle is to have a government sufficiently well-funded to do things that will be demonstrably in the interest of these people, both because that's morally the right thing to do, and because it will convince them once again that government can be what they see that it was under Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Kennedy and Johnson, those who have that kind of political consciousness. Now, one of the things we have to do in that regard doesn't cost money. I believe that middle-class liberals are now waking up to the fact that the attack on labor unions is one of the reasons we have seen the increase in inequality. The recognition that unions were, in fact, an effective fighter. And it's a conscious, there is a conscious anti-union policy. I mean, this may take a little longer, but there's a very important thing that happened that people haven't noticed. Paul, did you serve with Bob Corker? Was he there when you were there? Corker is the senator from Tennessee who has a reputation for not being crazy, which if you are a Republican today, 
buys you a lot in the press. I'm serious. There is a very low bar to be considered a reasonable Republican. You just say that Ted Cruz is wrong, and no, well, you're a person of great uh, sense. Bob Corker is the senator from Tennessee, former mayor of Chattanooga. Volkswagen has a plant in Tennessee and says to the United Auto Workers, I want to recognize you as a union, the company does, because they have had very good results working with their workers' councils in Germany. And to get a workers' council, you have to have a union. So they say to the union, good, if you have a union election, if you petition for one, we will support that. And they are about to have a union election, which the UAW is clearly going to win with Volkswagen support. And Senator Corker, a supposedly reasonable conservative, mainstream conservative, leads an effort by Tennessee Republicans to say to Volkswagen and its workers, if the union is recognized, we will withdraw our offer of a significant amount of money to expand the plant. And the union loses by a very small margin, clearly because Volkswagen was made an offer they couldn't refuse by Corker. Namely, that public money, which these conservatives were going to advance to expand the plant, would not be there if they voted for union. And somebody said to Corker, well, what do you care? The company doesn't mind. Why are you busting the union? And his answer was very revealing. If Volkswagen has a union, that will put upward pressure on wages. That is, the union will succeed in raising the wages of the people at Volkswagen. And if the workers at Volkswagen are getting paid more, that will have an upward effect on wages throughout Tennessee. And if wages go up, if wages go up throughout Tennessee, that will injure our ability to win companies from other states by underbidding the, the workers. Well, that's something that can be reversed by public policy. Other things are going to take money. I believe both for Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, the problem with health care was that they both wanted to expand health care to people who don't have it, but did not have increased revenue from outside the health care system to do it. So opponents of it and demagogues, given the natural suspicion of the electorate, were able to persuade people that the increase in health care for some people, was going to come at their expense. It wasn't true in any real way, but people believe that. If Clinton and or Obama could have said, look, I have $60 billion a year that I'm going to put into the health care system to expand health care to people who don't have it, and you'll all be beneficiaries because as there's more money into the system, that'll lower your insurance rates, etc. You won't have the hospitals subsidizing these people as much. I think that would have won. I think we can do a lot to provide both equity and longer-term economic equality by reducing the cost of going to community colleges and college and reducing the amount of heavy indebtedness so many people have, working families who face this terrible economic problem of sending their kids to school. We can hire more people in the construction field, have construction workers be fully employed by doing something so radical that Dwight Eisenhower came up with it, an interstate highway system, which is now challenged by the Republicans who say, let the states do it. So we could do a number of things that would be both beneficial and would, in fact, make people understand that government can be a good thing. The problem is this vicious cycle. As long as people hate the government, there's no way to raise the revenue to do it. So my proposal in the book is that we find ways, we find ways to stop spending money which we shouldn't be spending so we can spend it in ways that enhance the quality of our life and at the same time go to this sector of the population that legitimately complains about the unfairness of the distribution of how the wealth is going to only a few people as we spread it, as we increase it.
And uh, there are two places where I want to get it. One is the military. I, I do want America to be the strongest military power in the world. Um, people have asked me why, and the answer is, who else? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm not xenophobic. If I thought it was possible for Denmark to be the strongest nation in the world militarily, I would rest very easy. They would be very decent. But if you look at the other countries that might do it, they're a little scary, so better us. But not by the margin we have to have. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Well, first of all, yes, we need to deal with terrorists. The terrorists are terrible people. I cheer when one of them is killed. They are not a threat to our existence in the same order of magnitude as either the communists at their worst or the Nazis. They can inflict some harm on our society. They cannot destroy our society. And much of what we are doing is irrelevant to the fight against them. I wish nuclear-armed submarines could defeat terrorists because they don't have any, and we have a lot, and that fight would be over. But the obstacles to our defeating them are social and economic and political. Nobody doubts that we have a, a, an overwhelming superiority in military power. Other than that, we overdo it. There was a wonderful article I urge you to read the day after the 2012 election by a couple of people with Air Force connections, one from the Air Force Industry Association, one a man who had been an assistant secretary of the Air Force under George W. Bush. And they said, we're very worried. We think Barack Obama does not understand the need significantly to expand our Air Force. Now, it is true, they said, that no American has been killed by hostile air power since 1953. And it is also true that America has totally dominated the airspace over every military contract since then. Because of that, they lament, some people don't realize that we need to expand the Air Force. I, I was guilty. I was one of them who said, well, and here's the reason. America must be prepared, I'm literally quoting, to respond to trouble anywhere in the world, anytime, anyplace. Yes, we should be able to defend ourselves with a great margin of safety. We should be able to go to the aid of allies who are uh, troubled. There are times when a, when a joint intervention can be helpful. But the notion that we are the ones who have to respond with military force anytime there's a problem has several problems with it. The first of which is it will very often be counterproductive, that the problems are not solvable by military force. Secondly, that it is enormously expensive. And I do not understand where the obligation comes from for us to be the leader of the world. And, and, and I think that very often what you have is this, you look at, is, this, is there a moral purpose here? No, because you know, how are we advancing American values by so heavily aligning with Saudi Arabia? There may be good reasons to align with Saudi Arabia, but advancing American values is hardly one of them. Um, there are reasons to do some things, but much of the time there is this reflex that America must take the lead, and I believe it is simply that it is gratifying to be the leader of the world. And I believe, to be honest, if you look at England cutting its military budget, if you look at all of our Western European and Asian allies who are cutting their military budgets and are very happy to let America do it, that the rest of the world fully understands the message of Tom Sawyer. They are very happy to let us paint the fence and act like they're doing us a favor. And I'm not an isolationist. I wish we were doing more in Ukraine, to be honest, uh, sending weapons, although I don't think obviously we're going to invade. We should be doing more in sending money over. I'm very proud of the fact that the American response in Liberia was by far the best, so that Liberia did much better in getting rid of Ebola than either Sierra Leone, where the British were involved, or uh, Guinea, where the French were. 
I'm very proud of the American involvement there. There are other things we can do. But sending the American military in to resolve disputes that are internal and cultural uh, is, makes no sense. Um, the argument for increasing the Navy, by the way, you may have heard this, international trade is very good for America. And to protect it, we have to send our Navy all over the world to keep open the sea lanes for trade. Well, if you look at it, the only potential entity that could close the sea lanes, and they acknowledge this, is China. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would China, which makes an enormous amount of money over those sea lanes, want to shut it down? I mean, does, do the pizza delivery people want to tear up the streets? Um, and, uh, it, it is just, again, we must be the leader of the world because it feels good to be the leader of the world. Now, some say God ordained America to be the leader of the world, leading to the theological question, who had God put in charge before 1787? <laughs> Presumably, God didn't leave the job vacant for all those years until we applied for it. Um, I, I think it is an unexamined notion that somehow we should be the leaders of the world, and it is, it is I think, a, a fool's errand. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be more influential and do more, but not take on this universal responsibility with the consequent very expensive military capacity. And I do want to write maybe in my next book or an article, and I'm going to call it, for once, I don't know if you've seen, but I wrote a book before and they called it uh, Frankly Speaking, and then I write this book and the editor decided to call it Frank, and I am determined before I die to write one book in which I can keep my name out of the title. And um, this one I want to call Tempt Us Not Into Leadership, because we feel good being the leaders, and it, it is often counterproductive. You know, they talk about the deficit. If we had not gone into the Iraq war with all those negative consequences, we would, among other things, have a trillion dollars more than, than we now have, or a trillion dollars less than the debt. The other area, very briefly, at the state and local level, we spend an enormous amount of money locking people up because they make unwise choices about what substances to ingest. Not just marijuana, but cocaine and heroin. I believe our position should be that we will only make it illegal for people to take substances that make it likelier that they will be violent towards others. In other words, if they take, uh, let's talk about cocaine. Marijuana is sort of well along. How hypocritical are we? Everybody in this room knows a high-functioning person or two or ten that uses cocaine. It's useful to go after lower-income people, but in fact, the use of cocaine by high-income, upper-achieving people is uh, not uncommon in various places. I'll be honest, it, it may not be as true in Baltimore as it is in New York. I, don't, I mean, I understand that. But it's out there. And it is enormously expensive, the whole prison system. And people say, well, do it, do it more cheaply. After all, why does it cost more to send someone to prison than to send him to the state university? And it's true. The average cost of maintaining a prisoner for a year is more than sending someone to state university. You know why? Very few people try to escape from the state universities. <laughs> Confining people against their will all the time costs you some money. So I believe we could say somebody, now I do concede one flaw in my approach. I believe we should ban those substances, so angel dust, PCP, I'm not as au as they should be, but yeah, there are things if people take them, it'll make them more likely to be violent. I concede that with the worst of those, it's too late to do anything. It, it would be a mistake to ban alcohol, which is the major cause of people being uh, violent and offensive and dangerous to others. 
The problem with people who use heroin, cocaine, even marijuana, is not that under the influence of those substances they commit crimes, but that they commit crimes so they can buy the substances. If they were more easily available, it wouldn't happen. And I don't think it's a good idea for people to do that. I think a lot of things that most people do most of the time are not good ideas. What I object to is using the very expensive criminal justice mechanism to enforce it. And there's another factor. When you take crimes about which the society is ambivalent, which are not in themselves bad to other people, but we disapprove of them, given the fact that racism still pervades our society, although we, are, I believe, made great changes in, in cutting it back, it will inevitably be enforced in a discriminatory way. 86% of the marijuana arrests in New York City recently, I read, were of black and Hispanic people. No one I know thinks that they smoke 80%, 86% of the marijuana. So by converting this kind of drug use, and let's have fully funded programs to discourage people and, and people like we do in tobacco and, and, and clinical ways to help people kick it. But don't send the cops out to arrest them and try them and lock them up because they did something we think was an unwise choice with no negative effects in anybody else. If we could do that, we could free up the money. We could expand public services, have better parks and more police and more efficient firefighting and better snow removal and better paved streets and a lot of things that people would like. And we could make it easier for people to go to college. The VA had problems. We could better fund the VA, which was the source of the problem. By the way, uh, one of the things we can also do is connect the dots. Uh, when people talk about how they hate government, I, I have this, and I'm coming to a close now, but I have my, my response when I'm debating someone who said, I, I think we should shrink government. My answer is, okay, but let, let me understand. How many fewer firefighters would you like to have? How less often would you like the food to be inspected? Uh, how less frequently would you like the garbage to be collected? And how much less efficient do you want snow removal? The question is, is good government, uh, should government be big or small? Depends on what, the, uh, on what the area is. In some areas, I think it's too big. In others, I think... Uh, it is too small. And particularly, we have to remind people, and I'll close with this, some of my liberal friends make the mistake of saying, well, government's unpopular. We'll join in, in criticizing government, but we'll support this or that program. The whole cannot be smaller than the sum of the parts. If government is unpopular, very few programs will survive. What we should instead do is to say to people, by the way, that's government. The Department of Veterans Affairs, it's not just a government agency. The Department of Veterans Affairs is an example of socialized medicine, even more than Medicare. It is socialized medicine. You go to the VA and you drive onto a government piece of property and you enter a government building and a government doctor tells a government needle, a government nurse to stick a government needle in your ass. It's socialized medicine and it is very popular with the veterans who get it and they complain last time, not because the quality was bad, but because the quantity was too restricted. So I think we need to go on a, a, a campaign to positively talk about government and redirect spending. Don't engage excessively in military spending. Let's be the strongest nation in the world, but not by the margin. I forgot to mention, you talk about the Air Force. The Air Force, the U.S. Air Force is, of course, the biggest Air Force in the world. Do you know what is the second biggest Air Force in the world? The U.S. Navy. And hopefully they're not going to go to war with each other, so one or the other of them... <laughs> Could, could let up a little bit. You know, I don't like Putin. I'm glad my grandparents got the hell out of there. But 
We do not need the full range of ways to defeat the Soviet Union in the thermonuclear war when we are talking about a weaker Russia. And in particular, we still have the triad. We can drop thermonuclear weapons on the Soviet Union or its successor by intercontinental ballistic missiles, airplanes, or submarines. I have a serious proposal to the Pentagon. There are three ways to win a thermonuclear war against the Soviet Union. Keep two. Give up one. Save billions of dollars. It would probably be missiles that don't have dual use. So I think that is a very realistic program. And by the way, I finally think it is popular. Uh, you have an interesting example now in the Congress, and I'll close with this. President Obama asked for a resolution endorsing war making. Interesting. Congress is refusing to pass it. The history of unilateral executive war making is not overreached by the president by ducking by Congress. And here's the problem. The Republicans think he isn't asking for enough authority. They object to his saying that he doesn't want extended use of ground troops. And therefore, they say they can't pass a bill. Well, they're in the majority. Why don't they pass an authorization that gives them the authority they think he should have? And the reason is that they know it is unpopular with the American people. That despite John McCain and Lindsey Graham and those others who cannot read a story about a foreign country without wanting to dispatch American troops, <laughs> the American people are resistant to this extremely expensive, counterproductive introduction of our military force in situations where the problem is not a lack of military force on our side. So that is the program that I intend to keep arguing for. I appreciate your indulgence as I went on a little longer. And let's now have any questions. I think what there are microphones. Uh... Um, uh, Barney, uh, welcome. Uh, you argued, uh, I've heard on radio and other places and you know by your speeches, that you uh, attack people sharply and have a sharp tongue, but you attack them on the merits and don't get to ad hominem arguments. I just wondered what you would say about attacking somebody who is a senator who writes a letter to the enemy, um, undermining the policy of the United States, undermining the efforts to try to arrive at a peaceful solution to a complicated issue. I mean, I have friends who are in business and they say, if you're going to deal with a snake, you treat him like a snake. It seems to me that that might be the approach as opposed to one on just strictly the merits. Well, I, I would not advocate cutting the head off of senators with whom I disagree, but I agree you attack them on the merits and very strongly. You talk about their irresponsibility. They're not irresponsible in their personal choices. I don't know if they drive recklessly, but sending a letter to the Iranians, undercutting an effort to produce a deal, one is the wrong way to go. Look, the notion that you can ignore the American Constitution, the president is elected. They didn't like it, but he's the elected authority to make these deals, and the proper way to deal with that is to try to change presidents, not to dissolve our ability to act as a unified country in foreign policy. Secondly, and I'm glad you mentioned it, there's a substance. It is very clear that Benjamin Netanyahu and the Republican critics of the Iranian deal are advocating war with Iran. Prime Minister Netanyahu says, well, I'm, not, I'm for a deal, I'm for a better deal. But he knows very well that John Kerry and Barack Obama and the British and the French and the other co-negotiating powers are getting the best deal they can. And he also understands there is, this will be the best deal we can get. And the option is not to get a better deal. It's to have no deal at all or go to war. Uh, there's a guy named Josh Morabchik, who's one of the neoconservatives. 
And uh, he had a very interesting article in the Washington Post over the weekend saying, yeah, we want to go to war. The logic of the opposition to the nuclear treaty with Iran that we hope can be negotiated is to go to war, which would be an even bigger mistake with more disastrous consequences than, than the war with Iraq. And I think it is, first of all, important to call them on the substance and say, you guys really want war. And secondly, to say that deciding that because you don't like what the duly constituted authority is doing, you will try and effect to overturn it and disrupt is not the appropriate way to behave in a democracy. Lewis's kid brother, and uh, I have a question. With the understanding that the George W. Richard Cheney Bush administration was one of the great disasters of our time, can you speak as to why Glass-Steagall was gutted by the Clinton administration and by Greenspan? Uh, first, I voted against the repeal of Glass-Steagall, but I do not think it was a disaster you did. Glass-Steagall was largely outdated. It was passed in 1933. If Glass-Steagall had still been in effect, it would not have stopped the disastrous making of bad loans through securitization. Glass was a pretty smart guy, although, by the way, a virulent racist. Carter Glass was a terrible racist. Um, but he, uh, he never heard of, of financial derivatives. So I think the problem with... I was against the repeal of Glass-Steagall because it was not replaced with more appropriate uh, language. Elizabeth Warren, who's an advocate of reinstating Glass-Steagall, acknowledges that it was not the reason that we had the crisis. I would also say that the Volcker Rule is a partial reinstallation of Glass-Steagall, and the argument is that they are too big. Um, I understand that, and I think that is a reasonable debate to have, but the point I want to repeat again is that the, uh, the destructive activities that led to this last financial crisis None of them would have been prevented by Glass-Steagall because all of them were invented 30 and 40 years after Glass-Steagall uh, was adopted. Um, I just finished working on the 2014 election cycle, and one of the things you had mentioned um, was that the um, knowledge about policies, you specifically said the VA, from my experience it was the Affordable Care Act, um, that people don't necessarily understand that it's government and that it's good government that people would actually like. What I encountered was a lack of just general quality education. How do you fix that communication gap in a country where a very large segment of it is so poorly educated? Partly, look, I don't think they really don't know that the Department of Veterans Affairs is government. It just does not register emotionally. And I partly blame some of my fellow liberals because they make this decision that the way to support some of the programs is to join in the anti-government rhetoric. I was a great admirer of Bill Clinton. I'm proud to have defended him against the impeachment lynch mob. But I was very unhappy when he stood in the House chamber and said proudly, the era of big government is over, as if there was something wrong about government per se. And I also had to say to some of his staff, when was the era of big government? Did I sleep through it? I mean, we talked, was it 19... 35 and 36. I certainly didn't live through an era of big government when I came here, starting with Ronald Reagan. So part of it is the liberals have to stop demonizing government and then just make the connection. I mean, Paul's seen it. We've all seen it. We don't want government interfering with Medicare. You just have to... What happens is that 
we haven't made the counter case because people take the path of least resistance. Instead of defending government, they defend the specific program. So I don't think it works. So I, I agree with your general point. We have to be very aggressive. And I also, by the way, have problems with some of my friends on the left who join in the government bashing, um, including some of the TV. Uh, John Stewart is very funny. And what he says, so far as it goes, is accurate. But I think if you watch John Stewart all the time, nobody in government has any brains, and the government has never done anything right. I think a steady diet of negativism is a problem. And it's a problem with people on the left who go beyond expressing disagreement with specific government policies to denouncing the people in government, etc. And, you know, we just, one thing we can do is stop joining in the government bashing. You say, you know, how do we do that? Well, some of you have heard the old joke about the man who goes to the doctor and says, doctor, when I go like this, it hurts. And the doctor says, don't go like this. Um, don't keep bashing government. Point out to people. Look, when I did earmarks, which I think had a normal, had, had a good role if they were done right, I once began a speech, uh, on several occasions, I began a speech when I was asked to dedicate a project to welcome to an earmark paid for by your taxes. And we need to do more of that. So I'm 21 years old, I'm a college student, and I'm a proud liberal and a poli-sci major, but many people my age um, who are in college, you know, trying to have a future, they are not involved in government, they don't really care about politics. Um, most people don't know their congressional representatives, who their governors are. So my question for you is, um, Mr. Frank, is how do we get young people involved in government again? How do we get them caring about politics and civic That's issues? That's good, oh, let me start with the negative. Um, I wish people who share that view would stop joining in the government bashing. The cheap shot industry on the left is part of the problem. Beyond that, what you do if you're a candidate, what I would try to do is to, we know there are some issues that young people care about. Climate change. I mean, I will go to young audiences and say, look, let's be very clear. By the time this gets really bad, I'll be dead. So if you don't care, what, what am I getting worried about? Uh, we're talking, you know, 30, 40 years from now. Um, financing of higher education. Again, something very important to young people. So the way to do it is to deal and, and, and approach them on a very concrete level, identifying things that you know they care about. Now, it's still going to be a problem in this cultural competition for people's attention. Um, I wish somebody could develop a really funny show about the good things government does. I'm serious about that. We need a, a, a constructive uh, John Stewart or, or Stephen Colbert. Bill Maher comes closer that, to that than others because he makes... Uh, a, a, a humorous case, but that's part of the problem. Uh, and and I, we just need more people to try to do it. I mean, there's no magic way, but it certainly is the case if you're involved in that. Talk about the specific issues, like climate change, like financing higher education, that you know younger people care about, and I think that has some chance to win. This is going to be the last question, and then after that, um, the congressman will be in the desk behind the podium to sign books. Hi. I work in finance, and a lot I hear about the Volcker Rule and also the bill that you co-sponsored, the Dodd-Frank. Can you tell me what was your biggest challenge when co-sponsoring such a big bill? It was the influence, not of the biggest institutions, but of some of the grassroots institutions. American politics does work electorally in some ways. There are realtors and home builders and uh, insurance agents who collectively can have a, uh, a, a lot of pressure. And uh, so you had to worry about this exception there. Uh, the two biggest debates in the House 
One was creating an independent Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But I want to give a point that people, I hope, will talk about in favor of participation. Elizabeth Warren, who was the main author of that idea and with whom we worked very closely in, in, in enacting it, the day the committee I chaired voted in favor of the Strong Consumer Protection Bureau, independent, Elizabeth was there and talking to the press said, you know, they told me not even to try this because the banks always win, but they didn't win today. You take advantage of the crisis, as Paul Sarbanes did in that enormously important accounting reform, which took advantage of the Enron and other uh, situations. The problem is that you have to stir up public attention, which is hard to do, to, to beat back the ongoing influence of the, of the financial interest. That's, that's essentially the, the problem. We were able to do it at that time because the, there was such attention. Uh, the longer-term challenge is to sustain that when there is no crisis to focus people's attention. Thank you all. Let me just say um, I, I, I appreciate signing the books, and I'm glad to do it. I hope you understand. I won't be able to personalize the books. Uh, you know, it just takes a, a lot of time. I'll be glad to sign them, and I appreciate you giving me a chance to do that. Thank you. Thank you.